0: No matter how much of a um, anti-establishment, um, you know, kind of anarchist entrepreneur you are uh, in the beginning, and you want to take down the man, uh, if you are successful, you ultimately become the man.
1: I'm Torbear from Enigma. Welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, hello and welcome to yet another episode of Decentralized This presented by Enigma. I am Torbear. I'm the head of growth for Enigma and today our guest is Anthony Pompliano, also known as Pomp. Anthony is a founder and partner at Morgan Creek Digital Assets, which is an investment firm that provides access to blockchain technology and digital assets for institutional clients as well as wealthy family offices. So, they're really trying to get the traditional financial world on board with these new products and technologies. And as a result, Anthony does a lot of speaking, a lot of writing, and he even hosts his own very successful podcast. I hear those are really cool now. Uh, so, anyway, we're going to talk about Anthony's journey to his present role from the military to his time at Facebook to his VC firm, Full Tilt Capital, and now to the present at Morgan Creek. We discuss how to have a growth mindset in the decentralization space what we can learn and not learn from companies like Facebook, how to design growth loops, and we also talk for a while about his pinned message on Twitter, which I think is really interesting. Anthony does tweet a lot. You can follow him at apompliano. He's a very insightful guy, and moreover, he is humble and he is patient, which are both really critical traits, in my opinion, if you want to build our decentralized future. So, without any further introduction here is Anthony Pompliano. Anthony Pompliano, welcome to the fifth episode of Decentralize This. It is a pleasure to have you. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Uh, Awesome. So let's get right into it. Uh, I ask every guest when they come on, just first thing we do, personally, professionally, who are you, Anthony? Um.
0: Uh, wow. Uh. I am a brother, boyfriend, son, friend, etc. To uh, as many people as possible. Um. And
1: uh. And, and uh. Just generally a a human who enjoys life. Frankly, I like it. Uh. So let's focus maybe more on the professional side. We're gonna trace back your history a little bit. We have a few things in common. You and I. We have a lot more that's not in common. Uh, we'll get to talk about both, but before we talk about anything like projects or companies like you're personally invested in, because because right now you're on the investment side with uh, with the blockchain decentralization crypto space, correct? I am. So before we get into any of that, I want to help listeners who might not know you get into your head a bit, because I think the thinking behind your approach to investing in the decentralization and blockchain space is really interesting I think it's worth understanding your background to see how you got here, how you got to the approach you currently have. So we don't have to start at the beginning, right? We'll start a little bit afterwards, but let's maybe talk about um, what were you doing uh, right out of school?
0: Yeah, so actually uh, in the middle of college, got uh, deployed um, overseas, I spent uh, six and a half years in the army and uh, did a deployment to uh, Iraq. Um, and then I went back to school, uh, as, and as I was finishing up, uh, I ended up, uh, starting a, uh, a business.
1: How long were you over there?
0: Uh, 13 months,
1: man. What do you, what do you think? Were you, was it surprising? Like, was it what you expected or did it was it really like a perspective shifting experience for you? <laughs>
0: Um I went at the best time I could. I was uh 20 years old when I went um and uh I turned 21 uh in the middle of the desert <laughs> and uh I was just uh just young enough to uh, probably not care about a lot of things that, you know, sucked or uh, were not fun. Um and uh and was luckily surrounded by a lot of guys who uh you know, they uh they made sure that I uh, had my head on straight and kind of kept myself out of trouble. Because uh, the downside of being a twenty-year-old uh, at war is uh, you, know, you think you're invincible, <laughs> so it's uh, it was a it was a good combination of uh, people I was with and then uh, you know kind of the timing that I went. So it was a overall net positive experience, um, yeah, where I learned a lot.
1: What do you think? What do you think is the biggest thing you brought back with you? Because a lot of people will go through those kind of extremely high stakes experiences. Uh, And it will really change a lot of things about their outlook and then for some people, it it leaves them uh, very pessimistic. For other people, it gives them, I think, like this really – at least from the people I've met who have done deployments, it's given them this innate drive towards some sort of higher calling or, or greater good.
0: Yeah. I think that, um, I definitely didn't walk away with any pessimism. You know, I think you kind of
1: get it all out
0: there. Um, but the, uh, the thing I probably walked away most is just, you know, look, we're all going to die. Right. And I think I, when I came back, I said, I'm going to go have as much fun as I, you know, can possibly do in in one lifetime and just go do some epic shit. And so, uh, have, uh, have hopefully been, uh, kind of doing that since then.
1: Okay. So let's, let's go right to the next phase of life, right? You've come back, uh, from the deployment Uh, you're, you're back in school at this point, right? What happens, what happens next?
0: Um, so I played football in college and so being able to transition back from uh, from the military into uh, you know kind of a college football team there's a lot of similarities in terms of you know small groups um, all male uh, so you know kind of violent um, or violence related um, was all uh, I think helpful in kind of the transition back and um, probably helped with a lot of um, the avoiding of you know the PTSD and things like that that uh, a number of other people they um, you know, have suffered from uh, and then uh, from there, It was, you know, what else can I do? All of a sudden, you know, the party on Friday night isn't the most important thing anymore. And so, um, yeah, I started a uh, business in uh, in what ended up being my senior year.
1: What did that do? Uh,
0: We did online advertising uh, for public school districts. So a lot of them, uh, they've got high traffic on uh, the pages that uh, parents and students log in uh, to check grades, you know, assignments, etc. So we began uh, helping them monetize that in kind of
1: nuanced ways. Interesting. So this sounds like that was a really relevant experience that led into what you were doing at Facebook later on. Yeah, when I got to Facebook, um, you know, I, and what did I, you do uh, at Facebook? Because people may not know.
0: Yeah, so I, I um, worked on a team um, where we were responsible for driving growth uh, for Facebook pages. So if you think of Facebook pages as the uh, the business product of the company, you know you want to get as many businesses uh, using that product because uh, in order to become an advertiser, you need to have a Facebook page. And so um, started out with a team of eight people. Uh, we eventually grew it to uh, to quite a, a number of people, and uh, you know our, our goal was to just drive that. Um, weekly active page number. Um and, and ultimately we uh you know learned a lot along the way and, and were quite successful in doing so.
1: Facebook is a very growth driven company. It has been <laughs> since its inception. Uh I think I think the way they put it was sort of like growth at all costs. Very, very <laughs> land grabby. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I think that um, you know I was there in a very unique time um, where uh, you know the company had grown quite quickly to date. Um, It was just starting to um, you know kind of become self-aware to some degree. Um, So we started thinking about Facebook became self-aware. (laughs) <laughs> I, well, I, th- I think that, you know, it, we, we wanted to make sure that the things that we were doing were having a positive impact in the world, right? And so I went from, um, you know, running that growth team for Facebook pages to then uh, a number of initiatives that were more focused on, um, you know, kind of creating a positive impact. Uh, things like you know the Amber Alert system, uh, voter registration, um, places where you know we weren't worried about driving money, um, or revenue. Uh, we we just wanted to kind of have that positive impact, and, and I think we built products that you know serve that purpose.
1: Yeah, and you know if you ask Facebook now, they'll say that that was their legacy, right? They've built these systems, they've brought people together. They, there was the groups product. I actually, I think the Facebook groups product is really wonderful. Uh, in a lot of ways, but you know, as you must know, having worked there and and having this background a bit in advertising and everything else, you know that it's also uh, created some downstream effects that maybe were unintentional. Because uh, gro- that's that's kind of what growth does, I guess, is like it's it's one of those things where once you start prioritizing for it, it's not always something that you control. It's sort of it it sort of starts to take on a life of its own.
0: Yeah, I I think that I would argue, um, you know, that Facebook specifically as a company, the mission is and and was at the time to connect the world, right? We wanted to help make sure that every single person in the world could get connected to any other person in the world. Um, and the belief, you know, that I had held then and I still believe today is, you know, that's a net positive impact on the world. So, you know, are there potential negative impacts of that? Sure, right? Um, right. I think that they're you know pretty far and few between, um, and. Uh, uh, I, I tend to think that it's a net positive. Uh, and, and so it was you know exciting time to go to work every day um, and, and try to you know drive us closer to that mission. Obviously the company today's got you know over two billion people um, you know almost a third of the world uh, using the product on a, on a monthly basis. Um, and, and so I would argue you know there haven't been very many people on the internet who have been more successful in that company in doing so.
1: So let me talk about a parallel quickly to what I'm seeing in the decentralization space, right? Which is uh, you've got this new technology. It's not perfectly understood even by the people that created it. It's it's growing, right? Like this is still a technology that's growing and it's evolving. People want to make projections of where it's going. They're not sure. Some people say it's going to have tremendous positive impact on the world. Because now suddenly we're democratizing finance and access to banking systems. Like, if you're somebody in Venezuela, like, good thing we have Bitcoin. You know, like if you're talking about remittances, like it's fixing a lot of issues we have with our centralized banking system. On the other hand, there can be a downside to the rapid expansion and proliferation of new technologies that aren't necessarily well understood, aren't well regulated. Uh, we're already seeing some of that complexity play out uh, and we'll, we'll get to talk about it more. I'm just drawing that parallel here because this is when we start talking about your move from Facebook and this like traditional companies into into something a little more uh, f- future thinking, I guess. Uh, like, So can you talk about Full Tilt Capital? Because I, I know you did a few things in between, um, but l- let's talk about that because I, I think that's when you've really got into – investing on your own versus running these kinds of growth teams?
0: Yeah, look, I think that, you know, um, I started full Fulltail Capital with, uh, with my partner, Jason Williams. Um, our belief was that uh, there was a whole host of uh, entrepreneurs who wanted to start companies or were already starting companies uh, that, wanted capital uh, early on. Um, They needed help early on. Um, And they were doing so at a time where, you know, I think kind of the Silicon Valley narrative was, we'll just go raise friends and family first. Um, And and we fundamentally believed that, um, and still today, that not every single person has friends and family that can give them a couple hundred thousand dollars, right? And so uh, we set out to, you know, professionalize a little bit uh, that friends and family round, And uh, ultimately, ended up investing in uh, about sixty four, sixty five companies, and uh, that you know that that portfolio and those companies have uh, have done incredibly well. Um, And so, I think that you know we kind of validated that thesis
1: of investing. So, what happened after that? Because it sounds like you know you had a thesis, you executed on that thesis, you got to spread this capital around. Uh but but now you're doing something a little bit different I think with uh Morgan Creek
0: yeah, you know, we, we had been doing a bunch of uh, investing, you know, kind of professionally. Uh, at the same time, uh, personally, we were beginning to uh, to really look into the cryptocurrency space. Uh, Jason and I had built a number of cryptocurrency mining facilities. Uh, we had some unique power opportunities that, that made that attractive. Uh, and then on top of that, um, yeah, you know, we started to see more talent flow into uh, the space, and so we decided to dedicate our second fund uh, solely to to buying equity um, in infrastructure companies in the space. Uh, And as we started going down that path, we realized that there was an opportunity to deploy a lot more money than we'd originally thought. Um, But we realized that we probably weren't going to raise that capital as two guys working out of a coffee shop. Um, and so ultimately, we sold the management company of uh, a full tilt to uh, Morgan Creek Capital, a uh, multi-billion dollar asset manager based in uh, the U.S. And uh, we've teamed up with them to uh, build out a, a digital business uh, where we can leverage all of their back office kind of core infrastructure platform, um, you know, regulatory licensing, compliance, sales and marketing relationship. Tips, et etc. but we can go build an investment team that is focused on this digital age um, and hopefully you know it's a scenario where one plus one equals three or four.
1: Awesome. So I want to talk now about bringing things back to growth, right Like now we've gotten to the present day at Morgan Creek, but I want to talk about maybe your mindset around this. So the one thing that you and I have in common growth is in my title now, right? I'm the head of growth at Enigma. Uh, I've worked on growth before. I've worked on the growth team at Snapchat where I know you were also. Uh, if, if briefly, um, but another company that was very concerned with growth and, and expanding an ecosystem and thought the same way. it's like, oh, if we can connect the world uh, and, and bring meaning to that communication, this is valuable. We should just do it. Whether they did it correctly or not is, is not the subject of this podcast um, because I think they could have improved on a lot of things. But it did give me a deep appreciation for why a growth mindset is so important regardless of what space you're in, Uh, and specifically this this idea of growth loops. And in my mind, a growth loop is something where you've set up a system. uh, There's something you're measuring within that system. Usually it's adoption uh, or maybe it's usage. uh, And the way that you've set up the system, people in the system can recruit more users into that system or it creates more usage in that system. And it becomes self-sustaining. And setting up these kind of growth loops is critical to the success of any kind of product, any kind of platform. Social companies got that very early and sort of set the standard for, for everything. It's why we have Facebook and we don't really have Google+. Now Google+, has been completely shut down. You know, It started nominally with a bigger user base. They didn't set up the growth loop, not the way that they should have. So – I, I want to talk about growth loops because first of all, d- do you sort of see the same thing? Like do you do you believe in this concept of of setting up growth loops and, and creating systems that can become self-sustaining? And second, how might you see these growth loops and this growth thinking, system thinking uh, applying itself in the blockchain space and, and in decentralized technologies and crypto?
0: Yeah, I think that um, every single – great company has figured out how to incentivize users or customers, um, to value what they've created. Right. And so whether that's, they're paying for it, they're recruiting other users, um, that there's a whole bunch of different models or frameworks you can use to, to figure that out. But ultimately that's what valuable technology has done. And so, um, you know, I, I'm on record as saying the people who figured out growth hacking or incentives in the centralized world uh, won very big, but uh, the people who figured this out in the decentralized world will win magnitudes more, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the reason being that um, in the decentralized world, it's more global, right? And also, the incentives are much stronger. So if you look at the Bitcoin blockchain or the Bitcoin network, for example – most people would try to figure out how do we get people who use Bitcoin to then incentivize or uh, invite other people to use Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Well, the Bitcoin network figured out how to do it without anybody else's help, right? There's an incentive system in the block reward. And so, the, you know, there's unique things that come in the decentralized world or, or the cryptocurrency blockchain world that just weren't previously explored or used in the centralized world. And so I think that, you know, that's part of the beauty of all this is you take people who understand growth, who understand how to measure this stuff, how they understand, you know, kind of what's worked and what hasn't worked previously, and you give them a whole new set of tools and, and a wider audience to go after. Um, and I think that we're going to see some really incredible things built over the years.
1: So some of these growth loops to me are, are healthy, right? Especially if you're trying to scale something like the Bitcoin ecosystem or the Ethereum ecosystem, you could argue that some of these growth loops are, are self-sustaining and, and will continue to sustain those ecosystems and, the, and maybe the growth of the, uh, of the token that underlies it. Um, other things seem more like pyramid schemes. And we've had some examples in the crypto space of things that grew very rapidly and collapsed under their own weight. Uh, they were obviously based on incentive models uh and and pretty well documented incentive models that go back centuries pyramid schemes have been a thing forever uh, and then some people figured out how to codify it uh in in token form uh what what do you think of like the potential for some of these uh for some of these systems cuz some of them are very legit right and and they're self-sustaining then some of these things are growing but then they're collapsing I, i'm way more i'm way more interested in building sustainable decentralized systems a lot of these decentralized systems I'm seeing don't appear to be sustainable. What, what what do you think is the difference? Like what does it take to build a sustainable decentralized system versus something that's just going to grow and then collapse?
0: Yeah, I think there's two things, right? So one is incentives inherently are not good or bad. Right, they just exist. What you are incentivizing somebody to do, or the overall design of the system, can be good or bad. But the individual incentive itself is not good or bad. So I think we've got to separate those two things. Um, The second thing is on the system design. um, There's kind of two ways I look at it, right? So if you if you go into the bad category, there's either nefarious design or there is unsustainable design, right? And nefarious design is just scams, frauds, Ponzi's, you know, the whole nine yards, And, and those are relatively easy to pick out, should be enforced on and and just will not last, right? The, the harder problem is the unsustainable design, and on the unsustainable design um, side, I think what you get is a lot of people who are new to growth or, or trying to acquire users, for example, what they end up doing is they end up focusing on the wrong metrics or the, or the wrong levers, right? A common mistake is people just focus on, how do I get as many people to download my mobile app as possible, right, in the centralized world? And so if I just get a bunch of downloads, then I'm growing. Well, a sophisticated team would not necessarily look, start with you know the download number. Instead, they would look at what is our retained engaged, uh, engaged user base, uh, and what is that pace of growth of that cohort over time, right? Because I actually don't care how many people download my app. I want to know how many people download my app, stick around, and continue to use it on a you know relatively frequent basis. Because those are those are my the most important people. And so, just shifting the metrics that you use or pay attention to can, can drastically change the efficacy of a system. Uh, and then two, I think, is you know really being able to uh, identify why is somebody using this, right? So how do you make a system sustainable? You have to provide value. Right. And, and so, you know, the Ponzi schemes, et cetera, they only last for so long. And, and so it, until you stop giving the value. And so I think that, um, you know, in, in the decentralized world, uh, again, you know, people who understand incentives, people who are able to use these tokens and other, um, you know, pieces of the tools, I think, can build massive companies and massive networks um, that we've just never seen before, but but it's gonna take folks who really understand you know kind of network effects and and uh, you know k coefficients and design and incentives and all that kind of stuff uh, in order to be successful.
1: Some of these systems are pretty complex, right? It's not just like a two-sided marketplace. Like if we take Bitcoin, you know you've you've got the people who are trying to transact with Bitcoin. Then you have the people who are actually running the nodes themselves and like and mining Bitcoin um but it does really go way deeper than that if you look at the incentive structures because in a perfect world right like maybe maybe if you treat bitcoin as an academic project these incentives are are not very complex you know if you can make more money mining than you're paying in you know, electricity costs you'll keep doing it potentially but there's also now uh regulatory influence and there's mining pools and there's all these exterior uh, pressures and forces acting on the space, as well as ways for people to sort of uh, collude or or collaborate, even within these incentive networks. D- do you think that do you think that people really understand the effects? Like, because it's, we're now starting to talk about a very complex system. Do you think we have a good understanding yet of how all of these forces are interacting, even in our most even even in our biggest uh, decentralized systems like Bitcoin, let's say, let's focus on like blockchain-based ones.
0: Yeah, absolutely not, right? I, I think that that's okay as well. So just because um, we don't understand something doesn't mean we shouldn't build it. I think that we just need to be self-aware that there's things we don't understand, and we should actively try to learn um, as we're going. But you know, part of learning is experimentation. And I think that's you know kind of the stage we're at here is there's all kinds of new tools uh, available to entrepreneurs and, and uh, developers, and by allowing them the the ability and, and encouraging them to experiment, I think that we will uh, innovate faster and and, and will kind of quick uh, more quickly figure out what is going to work in the decentralized world, and then everyone else will go use it, right? But the people who figure that out first just are going to have a massive advantage.
1: So let's talk about like local versus. Global maxima, maybe, right? Because if we're talking about growth a lot of the time as an optimization problem, you're saying we need to pick the right metrics, figure out what's really valuable, and optimize for those. Sometimes you're just going to get stuck uh, and you're not going to grow past a certain threshold uh, unless you make some sort of major change to the incentive model or to the technological infrastructure. Uh, So when I look at the state of decentralized applications or, or things like that now, I wonder to myself, maybe it's because of the tech stack, maybe it's because of usability concerns. I worry that we're going to keep bumping into these local maxima of adoption. And I don't, I don't know how big that threshold is. I don't know if it's you know, a few thousand users. I don't know if it's a few tens of thousands. I, I want to ask you what, do you, what do you think are the real barriers towards getting like, millions of people using these technologies? Like, w- What stands between us and actually getting things to that scale? Well, I think you start in phases, right? And so there's already people, you know, millions
0: of people using crypto or cryptocurrency. Now they happen to be using it for speculation, right? So that's kind of a a easy, unsustainable uh, use case. And over time, hopefully it goes to more sustainable use cases. But I'm less worried about, you know, how do we get millions of people? I think the more important thing is how do we get 100 people to use something, love it, and and really interact in a model that is sustainable. Because once we figure out how to get 100 people to do that, to get from 100 to a couple million will be very easy, right? I think right now what we have is we've got systems that are designed to uh, not quite be sustainable or, or to really um, get kind of mass consumers interested, even if it's just 100 of them. And so before you can scale, you got to figure out kind of what that you know that product market fit or, or that user
1: product fit is um uh really before you know you're you're prepared for takeoff if you will. I'm worried that speaking specifically about decentralized tech now, right? I'm worried that we've you know we've already got a few hundred people who are really dedicated to this space and and, and you know the Bitcoin development community, the Ethereum development community uh, are, are very dedicated to these ecosystems. And there's not a lot of them and they're they're early adopters and very technically savvy. I don't know that it scales so easily from those kinds of hundreds of people into the millions of people. So the early use cases we're seeing seem to be optimized for these early adopters—sorry, early adopters—but maybe not so much for for a broad audience that could include millions of adopters. And that's why Vitalik says things like, "We haven't, you know, banked the unbanked. We haven't really done all these things that we said that cryptocurrency could do just yet." It still seems like there's there's, it's been optimized for developers. Do, do you have any concern around that? Or or how would we still move from that core audience to this, to, to growing into the millions, as you said?
0: Yeah, look, I think there's a lot of people who disagree with this, but I don't count the developers in an ecosystem as the users in that ecosystem, right? The developers are using it because they need to for their job or, or their kind of interest in building the ecosystem. What I'm more interested in is somebody who doesn't understand any technology whatsoever. Um, how do we get a hundred kind of normal mainstream users, right? And until you do that, that means that either the technology doesn't work, it's not attractive, right? It doesn't make something easier, faster, cheaper, etc. cetera. Um, or they don't understand how to interact with it, meaning that the design and, the, you know, both from a, a visual standpoint and a user design standpoint um, isn't up to par, right? And, and uh, I think that that's a multi-layer problem um, or a multi-dimensional problem. And and so it's going to take not just developers to fix that, but but I think you need kind of the whole host of uh, skill sets and experiences uh, at the table. Um, and, And I just, you know, I continue to tell people, I think Bitcoin is the most viral product. I think Bitcoin is the most usable product. And I tend to think that Bitcoin has the best chance to uh, remain kind of king, if you will, in the decentralized world, because at the core, what they figured out is they figured out the incentive model to scale on a global basis. And, you know, there will be other products that figure that out as well, but, you know, Bitcoin today is the one that is just so obvious to me. Um and, and I I have strong conviction it will continue to be uh in the future.
1: This is a great segue into how I'd like to structure the the second half of this conversation because um first of all, I want to acknowledge that you're a prolific tweeter. Do you know how many followers you have?
0: Um, too many,
1: (laughs) too many. Uh, that seems correct. I can't, I can't imagine having that kind of an audience. Um, but you know what, uh, you tweet a lot of insightful things. People tend to hang on your every word and the first ones that they see when they land on your Twitter page, you, you have a pinned message. I'm going to read it to you. I'm sure you know it, but it says my rules of business build shit. People want never give up, avoid assholes, question assumptions, learn new ideas, and always reward ambition. I think that's pretty cool, uh, but now I'm going to force you to walk through uh, all the components of that because I think uh, each of those things that you say is is super interesting when applied specifically to thinking about decentralized tech. First of all, starting with build sh- build shit people want. What do you think people want right now in this space? What do they want? Do they want decentralized applications? Do they want new types of payments infrastructure? Oh, or are you thinking more like there's a job they want to do, like the job to do thinking? Like w- what do people want? What should we build?
0: I, I don't think it's actually any of that. I, I kind of go as far away from the technology layer as I can. Like I think of this from a psychological standpoint, right? And, and the easiest examples in the financial industry, I think people want better banking. And that is You know, incorporates a whole host of things from, um, you know, uh, uh, retail bank accounts to how they access credit and debt to how they make investments. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that's incorporated there. But ultimately, I think that's what people want. And so, if you can build a better financial system or a better banking system, ultimately, you will attract a very high percentage of the. you know, the people involved in the financial system or the current financial system. The problem is that everyone is trying to build the decentralized financial system or the, you know, X financial system or the Y financial system. None of that matters to the mainstream audience. All they want is something that is better. And they're not going to be able to tell you what better is. And so I think that's where people have to start with is, can we build a better Product a better service than what is currently there, um, and, and you know I tend to think that decentralization will play a major role in that. I tend to think that um, you know technologies like blockchain will play a major role in that. Um, but 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 I think that you know when we get into the weeds of like oh we have to build something decentralized, we have to build a blockchain you know X product, it, it just takes away from what people want, and ultimately all they want is something that is better than what they have.
1: I tweeted something the other day kind of relevant to that. I said that decentralization as a movement, right, it's not new. And it's definitely like the concept of it is not let's find a way to use a blockchain, or at least it shouldn't be. But I see a lot of that now. It's people looking at blockchain and saying, we've got this new thing, what else can it solve? I I feel like you would agree with me in saying like, that's not a healthy way to approach this problem and it's not a great way to find something that can grow sustainably.
0: Yeah, it's uh, It's a hammer looking for a nail and that's usually not a good situation.
1: So that leads me into another part of your tweet where you say question assumptions. So what do you think are bad assumptions that people are making in the blockchain space that you think would be the highest leverage assumptions to destroy right now on this podcast?
0: Um I think the number one assumption that people have uh that I disagree with um I think a, pe- a lot of people believe the most valuable things will end up being the shiniest sexiest most complex you know things created by the people who appear the smartest mm. and and I actually believe that um ultimately value will be, will accrue to the simplest, most powerful ideas. And so, you know, I think we've seen that with Bitcoin, for example. I think we'll continue to see that where, you know, the people who want to come up with the, you know, six token model with the Web3 stack that's, you know, run on, maybe, but I tend to think that, you know, the great innovations come not from the um, kind of complexity or the robustness of an idea, uh, but they tend to be simple ideas that are overly well executed, and mm-hmm. so those are the teams that you know get me excited. Those are the teams that um, I think really got you know figured out, and ultimately those are the teams I think that are going to build all the
1: value. Maybe specifically, what do you what do you think about like something like stable coins? Because you seem to be talking about things that's like you don't like things with like way too many moving parts necessarily that are overcomplicating what could be a, a simple issue. What what do you think about like that technology, just to be specific for a second?
0: Yeah, I tend to think that there are plenty of you know nuanced use cases for a stable coin, right? But what I remind people is the best stable coin in the world is the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is a digital currency. 92% of the money supply is not in physical paper or coins. And so it is the most stable. It is the most secure, right? And it is a digital currency. And so anything that you are going to create that is going to compete with the U.S. dollar stable coin, you are going to need to build in a better way. And in certain situations, there are use cases for a decentralized or a crypto-based stablecoin, um, but but I don't think that the opportunity uh, as people are approaching it today is nearly as big as you know. I think that you know most would guess. Uh, my, my take on it is. The stablecoin itself is probably less interesting than the ways people are trying to create stability, right? So if you take you know certain projects that are using um, you know algorithms or um, pegs or you know whatever they're doing, that the innovation there is probably much much more interesting than just the access or ability to leverage
1: a stablecoin. Mm-hmm. And stablecoins are are interesting in the context of growth because. With a stablecoin, the the whole stated goal is to increase access and increase adoption of the stablecoin, but not to grow the value, or at least the nominal USD value of the stablecoin. Which, if you look at a lot of um, maybe token based projects, they don't say anything like that. You know, there there is the potential that uh that the value of this underlying digital asset could continue to grow and stablecoins have this whole complex model set out where that's that's not what they're optimizing for at all can something like that in your mind grow relative to something like bitcoin yeah i think that you know it, in crypto specifically
0: you would be crazy to say something will never happen right? I mean, the, the, all kinds of wild stuff can happen. Um, but, but I think that, you know, it's more about uh, probability, right? A, a friend of mine, uh, Ken Seif, uh, he's got this saying that he's looking to invest in things that are possible, not probable. Right. Um, for me, it's, you know, a lot of times when people are looking at these technologies, um, it's less about is something possible, from a user perspective and it's much more about is something probable so investors want possible not probable. I think users want the opposite they want probable, not just possible
1: that's an interesting perspective on it i mean my my background besides uh, being on the growth side of things is I, I used to be in derivatives trading and all derivatives trading has ever been about is valuing the probable, valuing the possible understanding that there's a very large difference between something that's a 60-40 proposition and a 40-60 proposition. I think in crypto, a lot of the time, we're dealing with propositions that are far more unlikely than that. And it may be that we're going to deal with a lot more like black swan type events in this space. It may be that the, the types of things that end up upsetting some of these new decentralized systems we're setting up are things we could not or would not have foreseen. I, I see a lot, a lot of you know risk to this stuff, and at the same time, a lot of outsized reward because we're building things that have never existed. We're experimenting with technologies that we've never tried to implement at scale in the wild. So you're you're an in, you're an investor now, right? You're you're not a user. What are you? Is this affecting the way that you're investing, knowing that the user wants something different than your average investor in this space? Because you know that a lot of these VCs coming into the space now are not looking for things that are even remotely relatively certain. They're taking crazy long shot bets on speculative technology. I think that they're
0: looking for the same thing. They're looking for it at different times in the life cycle of the technology, right? So an investor is looking uh, for something that is possible, not probable at the earliest you know, sign of life. Hmm. And so over time, as that technology matures, it goes from possible, not probable to, you know, still possible, a little bit more probable. And then eventually gets all the way to the point where it's definitely possible because it is probable. Right. right. And I think that, um, you know, that's when users start to become interested is when something is probable and possible. Um, so I think that, you know, it, it is a risk return, um, profile that, uh, just two separate groups of people looking at technology at two different points in time, um, and, and is completely rational from both seats.
1: Maybe this is a good framework. Then I'm thinking like capital, at least in this space, maybe less and less each day. But the capital doesn't seem to be the scarce resource. So investors are comfortable spreading the capital around, taking weird bets, experimenting. Users, you know, time is still finite. You know, and, and as a user, that is the resource that you have to give to these platforms. You have your own time. You're an early adopter. It takes even more of your time to adopt these platforms. Uh, time is really scarce. There has to be tremendous value to the end user to want to commit your time. As an investor or as a venture capitalist, you might not need to understand how much time is going to take people to adopt this. If you believe that there's value in the long term to the technology, you're you're not giving up your time now. You're just giving up your capital.
0: Yeah, I, I think that the um, you know you can't create more time. <laughs> Right, and so the the belief that um, you can trade capital for time, uh, most people will make that trade. Um, but but uh, you know, again, it, it all comes down to the individual situation. Um, but but that framework, t- you know, our trade off between capital and time, I think, is something that people face both professionally and personally on a daily basis, um, and they optimize for what they believe to be the best return on their investment, and that investment can be either that capital or that time.
1: Okay, then let's talk about one other piece of your tweet, the part where you say learn new ideas, right? We just talked about how people have scarce time. There's a ton of new ideas out there, not just in the decentralization space, but there's information overload everywhere. If somebody's trying to get into this space, either as a developer, as an investor, as a user, they've got finite time. In your mind, what's the most valuable thing they could be learning?
0: Saying Or asking the question of what does somebody need to learn um, is a pretty difficult question because it's like saying with the internet, you know, hey, I want to get into the internet, so what should I learn? Well, you should learn a lot of things. And my first piece of advice to people when they ask me what they should learn is to learn more about themselves, right? Because I I truly believe that learning is a uh, function of uh, self-awareness. And so if you're interested in, you know, finance – great. There's a whole bunch of resources as to how to, you know, learn about the challenges finance are are facing, uh, what decentralization can do to the finance industry, both positive and negative, et cetera. But maybe you're not interested in finance at all, right? Maybe you're actually interested in the music industry. So going and understanding, you know, blockchains and decentralization, et cetera, in the music industry is a whole different ballgame. Um, but, but I think that, you know, the, the one common ground that, uh, everyone should have in this space uh, is the the underlying story uh, of how blockchain technology was invented or created, um, and I think what that does is it gives people historical context. And from there, you know, they're kind of off to the races down there, down down their own rabbit hole.
1: That's really interesting. So that that idea of a shared history—I mean, the space is very fragmented now, right? In terms of how people get their information about projects in the space or how people get their information about like what's happening in the Bitcoin ecosystem, it's really hard to keep that alignment, right? To have these shared stories, these, this shared culture. Do you, do you see, do you see this getting easier over time? Do you think we're going to keep bringing people back to like some sort of fundamental uh, like decentralization ethos, Bitcoin ethos, or Is it just going to get harder as awareness of these technologies grows to to keep that alignment? I worry a lot about how we keep people collaborating in this space because I've seen how tribal it can be.
0: Yeah, so I I think there's a couple of components here. The most important is the longer that Bitcoin technology exists and the more important it becomes to society, the less important the origin story is, right? So, you know… In the first ten years, uh, the the story of Satoshi and, and all of that is very important. In the first twenty years, it's you know a little bit less important. In the first fifty years, it's less important. And and so over time, I think that that stuff goes away. Now the ethos of this is uh, again, it's important in the beginning because that's what draws people in. It, it's a um, a way for them to stake their their reputation and, and their mental energy on I believe in this, right? And they they get excited and they uh, are recruited in or attracted in um but but over time i think that we're going to find you know even those ethos goes away right and, and it's the whole belief that you know no matter how much of a um anti-establishment um you know kind of anarchist entrepreneur you are uh in the beginning and you want to take down the man uh if you are successful you ultimately become the man Right. And, and so I think that we're seeing that even today with companies like Apple and Microsoft and Facebook, et cetera, is that these founders were not, um, you know, kind of the man or the establishment uh when they started their careers. And so I, I think that. That stuff is really, really important in the beginning. Um, but over time we get to a point where it's just you know less important and uh, I, I think that we will get um, you know people at some point who join an, the ecosystem or the industry uh, who, who don't even know what those original ethos were or that original story uh, and that's okay.
1: Well, that's I, I mean it's a valuable outlook to have just kind of understanding how things are going to change over time. And it leads me to the, the final question, and it can be as, uh, as quick as you like, but let's just focus on the next year, right? Because we can talk 20, 50 years down the line. I know you believe in the long-term value of this technology. What do you think people should watch for in the next like 12 months if, if, you, if you think that they are going to be looking at the most interesting thing in this space? Like what should they be watching out for? Where, maybe it's where value be, is being created. Maybe it's where the growth is. What, what should they be looking at?
0: Yeah. So I'm a big fan of the Bill Gates quote, you know, you overval- or overestimate what you can do in one year and underestimate what you can do in 10. Um, my, my guess is that uh, one of the most significant events that is possible to happen in the next year is if news breaks that sovereign wealth funds um, or sovereign nations are buying Bitcoin. I, I really think that that will um, – cause mass chaos I think that will cause uh, an institutional fomo like we've never seen before um, and, and I think that um, you know, it would be a pretty powerful moment in the history of crypto and, and blockchain um, and, and I could see it happening in the next year or so so I think that would be the one moment that uh, you know if that happens I'm really interested to see kind of how how all of the teams markets capital allocators etc react.
1: I think that that's a great place to leave things because now we're all going to be watching for when it comes on the news that the sovereign wealth funds have all bought into Bitcoin and, <laughs> and we're starting to realize this thesis of digital gold. Um, I, I think that uh, you're right. It could be this year. It, it, and honestly, because the space is speculative, it, it could be that it, it's not Bitcoin that this happens to. We, we just don't know. Uh, but that's why it's exciting to work in. That's why I'm sure it excites you uh, to come to work in is, is that we're still writing the future together. And I know that, uh, with your work, you're a big part of it. So I want to thank you for, for coming on today and giving up so much of your time to talk about this stuff. You have your own podcast. I, I know I've gotten you out of your elements and into, into my zone here. Uh, but I love your podcast. Maybe just as you're signing off, tell, tell listeners how they can hear more of you.
0: Um, uh, yeah, look, I appreciate it. I had a lot of fun doing this and, uh, Folks can uh, can I think they can just go to uh, the Apple um, Podcast Store and get, uh, search "Off the Chain." Um, and I think it's available on uh, Spotify, Google Play. You know, the guys who helped me with it are uh, are fantastic uh, over at Blockworks Group, and so they uh, they've got it kind of everywhere that uh, that most people listen.
1: You bring on some cool guests. I try to do the same. I tried to do the same today. So I hope everybody listening that you you learned a bit from Anthony's conversation with me. I hope you learn more by listening to more of his stuff and checking out uh, all the stuff that he writes about. I know he's got a newsletter too. We'll put links in the episode description so you can follow up. But Anthony, thank you for taking the time. I had a blast just, just hearing you talk about this stuff. It's clear you have a real passion for it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about Enigma, you can visit us at www.enigma.co. You can go to our blog at blog.enigma.co. You can join our telegram group at t.me slash enigmaproject. If you're curious about anything we talked about in the podcast today, make sure you follow the links below in the episode description. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube or follow us on Medium so you don't miss our next awesome episode and interview. Otherwise, Thank you for listening. We hope to see you next time on Decentralize This. I'm Tor Bear. Have a great day.